0: Support for MPB comes from the Pediatric and Congenital Heart Center of Alabama at
1: Children's of Alabama, a cardiovascular care center for children in Birmingham, Alabama. More at childrensal.org slash heart.
2: Good morning. It's 830. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a new report on Head Start in Mississippi and across the nation says all the children who need it aren't being reached. The reason? Not enough money.
3: Essentially, Head Start has been vastly underfunded for 50 years. So local programs have nothing but bad choices. They can serve fewer children, or they can serve them for fewer hours, or they can serve them at lower quality.
2: Then, protecting adolescents from HPV. Later, letting the king of rock and roll in the Mississippi Hall of Fame and taking stock of the state's governors in our book club. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Head Start has been helping underprivileged families in Mississippi since 1965. The social program's effectiveness in 2016 varies greatly from state to state. That's according to a new report by the National Institute for Early Education Research. The states of Head Start report took a, uh, a look at, or the stats rather of Head Start report took a look at Head Start across the country and found quality enrollment, teacher pay and many other factors were all over the map. MPB Sid Scott spoke with Steve Barnett, director of the National Institute for Early Education Research, he says the difference in Head Start from state to state is notable.
3: The first takeaway is that even though Head Start is a federal program, it's almost unrecognizable from one state to the next. It's so different across the states. Uh, it's different in the number of kids who have access. It's a difference in funding per child. It's a different in program quality, it's even different in uh, how many kids get to go uh, five days a week for a school year at three and four.
4: And in looking at that, did you discover any reasons for this, these uh, discrepancies?
3: There aren't any good reasons for most of those discrepancies. Uh, essentially, um, Ed Start has been vastly underfunded for 50 years, and so Local programs have nothing but bad choices. They can serve fewer children, or they can serve them for fewer hours, or they can serve them at lower quality. But they can't have quality, adequate hours and reach even half the kids they're supposed to serve. So local programs make different decisions about which of those is worse. That leads to some of the disparity but the other thing is that Head Start allocations by state have basically been frozen in time since 1981, and uh, a lot of has changed.
4: Yes, the cost of living has changed, and, and political climate has changed as well. Do you see that?
3: Political climate has changed, cost of living has changed, but also the composition of states has changed. So some states are wealthier than they used to be. Some states are poorer than they used to be. Some states have large immigrant populations they didn't have 25 years ago. That's just barely acknowledged in funding decisions.
4: Now, in this state, in Mississippi, we have slightly more than 26,500 children enrolled last school year in Head Start. What does that tell us about the demand for Head Start in this state? Are are those 26,500 all the children who could benefit from Head Start in Mississippi?
3: It's less than a a quarter of the low-income children who could benefit from Head Start. It's no more than half of the children in poverty who could benefit. And Mississippi is one of the states that actually does well in terms of coverage, but it's still far from covering the eligible population.
4: When you're looking at, let's get back to the political climate and the underfunding, uh, Head Start being underfunded to the tune of about $14 billion, considering the need you all found in your research. Looking ahead, do we see Head Start getting closer to the level it deserves or it needs, or how are you reading the uh, next administration and the Congress?
3: One can only hope that the next administration and Congress will take bold steps Uh, that there'll be reform in other programs that will make room for the things that are most important, that uh, where there is waste, fraud, and abuse, that's going to be cut, and uh, that will make uh, it possible to move forward. But I also think that local and state government are going to have to step up. Mississippi started a quality pre-K program. It serves very few children. So I think there's work to do in partnering with Head Start so that local, state, and federal government working together might be able to tackle this better than just the federal government on its own. But uh, there's certainly a lot, a lot to do. Head Start teachers in Mississippi are paid less than $22,000 a year if they have a four-year college degree. Now, now that's a poverty level income. Yes. That way, you'd be eligible for the program if you had a couple of kids.
4: We've been talking with Steve Barnett, who is director of the National Institute for Early Education Research, about the new report, The State of Head Start. I appreciate you making time for us.
3: Yeah, you're welcome.
2: Up next, protecting adolescents from HPV. This is Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. What makes a dish American? Sarah Lohman is a historical gastronomist, and she says it's all in the basic flavors, like chili powder. The man who invented chili powder didn't want to have to grind all those chilies, so he created this dried chili powder to be used in Texas-Mexican cooking. I'm Audie Cornish, the eight flavors of American cuisine. Later on, All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Today at 4 on
2: NPB Think Radio.
0: As you consider where the country should go next, NPR will be here with the facts to help you make sense of new appointments, policy changes, and all of the day's news. So listen every day.
2: I'm Kara Miller. Every week on Innovation Hub, I talk with the thinkers, researchers, and visionaries who are crafting our future. Tune in to hear conversations about how tribalism shapes us, what new research on obesity reveals, how chicken changed America, and why math class should be reinvented. Coming Sunday, January 8th at noon, hear Innovation Hub on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's Department of Health is updating its guidelines for the HPV vaccine. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is now recommending adolescents under age 15 get two shots instead of three. HPV is, a commonly, transmitted, is commonly transmitted through sexual activity and can cause cervical, vaginal, and other genital cancers. Mississippi has one of the highest cervical cancer rates in the nation and one of the lowest vac- vaccination rates for the disease. State epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers tells MPB's Desiree Fraser the goal is to reach children before they become sexually active.
5: It's two doses rather than three doses and that's um, been a very recent change and we are in the process of updating our guidelines at the Department of Health to um, reflect that change that now um, two doses and it's Two doses uh, six months apart, and that will be um, adequate coverage for those for those children. Do you give out that shot often? Our rates of the HPV vaccination have been have been somewhat disappointing in Mississippi. We have made some progress in both males and females with um, starting the vaccination series. So we're doing better with with getting. Uh, adolescents that first dose. And we've had some improvement in our overall rates over the last several years, but it's been a slow uptake. You know, we have seen some improvement in overall adolescent vaccinations with the implementation of the Tdap vaccination requirement for school entry. Uh, back a few years ago. And for those children, we've started to see some increases in our Tdap or the pertussis booster uh, vaccination rates. And we've seen some increases in our meningococcal vaccination rates for, for adolescents as well. But we have seen a slower uptake with vaccination for HPV. So they come in and get the first shot, but they don't come back for the others. Well, our vaccination rates are improving with getting children started on that first shot. Uh, we have made some improvements in 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 completing the series in both males and females. We've especially made some improvements with with males, um, but our vaccination rates for for uh, adolescents for HPV are low, and and we have been one of the lowest rates uh, in the United States for HPV vaccination for the last several years. And that's discouraging. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, I wish that we had a good handle on on all of the reasons why um, uh, we have a poor uptake of of vaccinations for HPV. Certainly part of it may have been the three-dose series. and, And CDC has made some recommendations which may improve overall completion rates for for HPV vaccination, uh, cutting it back to a two-dose vaccination for, for children less than 15. And that's good. You know, uh, like I said, I don't know if we have a good handle on all of the reasons why um, HPV vaccination um, uh, rates are are not climbing as rapidly as we would like to see. It's a good vaccination, okay? It does prevent cancer. If you had Uh, something as easy as that to prevent all sorts of cancers. Uh, I think that that would be something that we would really want to heavily promote. And this is a vaccination that prevents cancer, and you want to prevent that in your children. And so it is a good vaccine. Do you think enough is being done to educate young people and their parents and providers to push this vaccine? Well is there enough that's that's being done that's a that's certainly a hard one to quantify, but we are doing a lot of activities and and we have been working to educate uh not only the public but we've been targeting uh pediatricians as well to make sure that and and, and primary care physicians to make sure sure when you see these children don't don't let that opportunity uh slip by to get those children um vaccinated and that's certainly What we do at our health department clinics is when when these children come in, we want to make sure that we don't miss opportunities.
2: MPB's Desiree Frazier with state epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers on new guidelines for immunizing adolescents from HPV. Up next, letting the king of rock and roll in the Mississippi Hall of Fame. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. As you consider where the country should go next, NPR will be here with the facts to help you make sense of new appointments, policy changes, and all of the day's news. Listen every day. What makes a dish American? Sarah Lohman is a historical gastronomist, and she says it's all in the basic flavors, like chili powder. The man who invented chili powder didn't want to have to grind all those chilies, so he created this dried chili powder to be used in Texas-Mexican cooking. I'm Audie Cornish, the eight flavors of American cuisine. Later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. One of the most iconic figures in modern times is now in the Mississippi Hall of Fame. Tupelo's Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, is among five new inductees this year. The world-famous hip shaker was kept out of the Hall of Fame previously by a rule that kept musicians from the hall. Chris Goodwin is with the State Department of Archives and History. He tells MPB's Mark Rigsby Elvis is one of five new inductees.
1: We are excited that Evelyn Gandy... The first woman uh, elected lieutenant governor of Mississippi, the pioneering transplant surgeon, Dr. James Hardy, Representative Aaron Henry, the longtime leader of the NAACP in the state, the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, and uh, Ida B. Wells, a crusading um, journalist and anti-lynching advocate uh, from the early 20th century, have all been added to the state's Hall of Fame.
0: Who decides who gets in the Hall of Fame?
1: The public makes nominations to the Hall of Fame. We uh, accepted nominations throughout the year. The elections to the Hall of Fame take place only once every five years, though, and only five people can go in. So it is uh, highly competitive, highly selective. There were 47 names submitted for consideration that were eligible, and the Board of Trustees of the Department of Archives and History uh, voted and eventually, after many rounds of voting, chose these five.
0: How many Mississippians are in the Hall of Fame?
1: With these five, the number comes to 136. Those are Mississippians defined as native or adopted. So perhaps you were born here, lived here all your life, and died in Mississippi. Perhaps you spent some crucial part of your life and made a significant contribution to the state. Either way, we take you as a Mississippian.
0: How much of a presence does Mississippi's civil rights history have in the Hall of Fame?
1: A growing presence, certainly. Over the last few election cycles, we've seen folks like Medgar Evers, Fannie Lou Hamer enter the Hall of Fame. Um, it, it is certainly the case that that will be a growing component of it. And really, with Adeby Wells and um, Aaron Henry, they provide some bookends for the Hall of Fame movement in the state um, with Ida B. Wells being born into slavery in 1862 and going on to really have an international profile as an anti-lynching crusader. And then um, Representative Henry, with his long career in the state, both in private business with his pharmacy as head of the NAACP and then as a state legislator. Um, Really just a a distinguished career for for each of them.
0: Give us the most notable names that are in the Hall of Fame. Who who, who would who would have instant name recognition? The truth
1: is probably Elvis Presley, the newest uh, inductee would have the highest international profile. Elvis Presley is uh, just now entering the state's Hall of Fame because for many years the Hall of Fame did not accept nominations of musicians. The theory was that since there was already the Mississippi Musicians Hall of Fame that they would not be eligible for the state's Hall of Fame. Five years ago that was rethought and I believe... Um, Everybody really came to the right place on it, which was that, look, if you are significant enough to be in the Hall of Fame, you should not be barred from it because you are a musician entertainer.
0: What kind of impact did Elvis have on Mississippi, the United States and the entire world?
1: It's easy to say transformative, but he really was an iconic figure that changed the way that so many things (laughs) happened the change that he brought in youth culture, the changes in popular culture were, were not just limited to certainly the state, the nation, but international. And he is a Mississippi boy at heart. He certainly went on to live in Memphis for uh, his adult life and, and performed all over. But the roots of what he did all come from his Mississippi upbringing, his Mississippi family.
2: MPB's Mark Rigsby with Chris Goodwin of the State Department of Archives and History on the new inductees into the Mississippi Hall of Fame. Up next, taking stock of the state's governors in our book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News online at MPBOnline.org and on MPB Think Radio.
4: The end of the year is the perfect time to get rid of that old car that's been taking up space in your driveway or garage. Why not let someone else sell that car for you while you simultaneously contribute to MPB? Donations received by 12 a.m. local time on January 1st count for the 2016 tax year. Wrap up your year in the spirit of holiday giving and receive a tax deduction for your vehicle donation to MPB. To donate or learn more, go to mpbonline.org.
2: This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. In its 199-year history, Mississippi has had 53 governors. Some were forward-thinking champions of the little guy. Some were avid segregationists. Some were duelists. In his new book, Mississippi Governors, Soldiers, Statesmen, Scholars, Scoundrels, historian David Sansing brings these men to life in a candid, illustrated volume. He tells us about the raucous history of Mississippi's governors in today's book club.
6: There have been 53 individuals who have served as governor. Some have served for two terms. Some have served just one.
2: Did any of the governors die while in office?
6: Oh, yes. Three or four of them died. Several of them did.
2: Your book is Mississippi Governors, Soldiers, Statesmen, Scholars, Scoundrels. So we're going to talk about each of those. Tell us about a governor who was a soldier.
6: Okay. Charles Clark. He was a Confederate general. He was wounded in the battle in New Orleans, and he was severely crippled. He used crutches, and he campaigned in 1863 on crutches. He canvassed the state in his uniform on crutches, and he was elected by an overwhelming majority. And I say uh, in his biography, who would not vote <laughs> for a crippled Confederate general?
2: Tell us about a governor who was a statesman.
6: There were, there were many statesmen. Recent governors like J.P. Coleman, James P. Coleman, was a, a man of, of great intellectual and, and moral character. J.P. Coleman was governor during the civil rights crisis, the beginning of it. The state legislature, they passed a resolution forbidding the implementation of federal laws forcing integration. Governor Coleman said, that's legal poppycock. We can't do that. But he signed it. He signed it because he said he knew that the people of Mississippi were not psychologically, emotionally, philosophically ready to integrate. And he said, if I make an attempt to veto this legislation, it will create havoc in Mississippi.
2: Which governor do you think, or if there are several, had a vision that changed the course of Mississippi?
6: It's it's difficult to say one governor because J.P. Coleman was a a governor who, who literally persuaded Mississippi to look at the world from a different perspective. But he set up conditions for Governor Bill Waller. Governor Waller, I refer to him as Mississippi's transformational governor. He appointed blacks to high public office for the first time since Reconstruction. He appointed women to high public office for the first time ever. He brought about business change. He brought about virtually a revolution in Mississippi's trade. He was the first governor to really go to foreign countries and establish trading agreements. He was probably the change governor in Mississippi. But William Winter is also one of those stellar figures who brought about significant improvement and change. And he was a scholar and a statesman and then Ray Mabus, Ray Mabus was a, a change agent and brought about a lot of significant change and improvement in Mississippi's education system as well as its legal system. And then Haley Barber, his tort reform law that was passed under his administration was considered throughout the country as one of the most significant tort reform statutes passed and he was he has been highly regarded for that
2: david Sansing is emeritus professor of history at the university of mississippi his book is called mississippi governors soldiers statesmen scholars scoundrels thank you very much for being with us thank you ma'am Coming up after Mississippi Edition, it's Creature Comforts, MPB Season Pass, and Southern Remedy. And remember, if you want to catch the show outside the broadcast, just search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app and listen whenever you like. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio.
3: Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio.
0: It's Marketplace Tech for Thursday.